I'm Sean Britton. I'm here presenting today on financial health and wellness for EMS clinicians. I want to start by saying thank you to uh, GEMS for hosting this talk today, letting me participate in a GEMS talk. It's definitely exciting and a privilege to be able to provide this information to the EMS community. So a little bit about me, who am I? Uh, I've been in EMS since 2004. I've been a paramedic since 2008, as well as an EMS uh, educator and have been involved in EMS course development. I was full-time working the street for several years and then had the opportunity to uh, get into different areas of public health and hospital administration while taking some additional coursework over the years. Had the fortune of being involved with the EMS industry through NAEMT and other endeavors. I was the chair of the uh, workforce committee for several years. Currently, I'm also the financial planner at Stat Financial Health. I'm a licensed investment advisor representative and a licensed insurance consultant. Because I am licensed, I do have to provide this required disclosure that I'm registered with the state of New York, but I am able to really serve clients anywhere throughout the nation with uh, the virtual practice. So along the way, just to make this more interactive, if you want to put uh, questions or comments into the Facebook chat, definitely uh, want to engage and make this uh, informative and fun and answer questions, specific questions even that people might have. And I have to start by saying that finances are very personal. It's something that we generally keep to ourselves. We don't like to talk with others about. There are questions people have that they don't necessarily feel comfortable asking because they're nervous that they should already know. Uh, in many cases, most people are really overwhelmed by finance. They don't have a, a great uh, knowledge of this, uh, which, is, which is why there are finance professionals. So it's, it's perfectly uh, normal uh, for people to, to really have kind of a, a shyness talking about this topic. But it's also important because uh, it affects people in many ways, which, which we'll uh, go further into. I'd start by sharing a story. I recently worked with a client who had a long and distinguished career in emergency services. As a clinician, as an administrator, would never have any concerns or uh, hesitations about making a complex clinical decision, assessing a situation, effectively managing uh, an emergent scene with multiple patients but found finance to be a little overwhelming, just a, a little too much to handle. Uh, and what we found was working together and with some coaching and breaking it down into smaller pieces, it really uh, made a lot of clarity and made this person feel very confident with the things they were doing and the things they wanted to do. Uh, and that's, that's really the point of what we're trying to get to today. So when we talk about wellness, we're learning more and more that wellness has a lot of components to it. It's not just physical health or mental health. There are many different aspects of what makes a person feel a state of wellness. And increasingly, there is evidence that financial health actually impacts mental health and physical health. And when we think about that, it really makes a lot of sense. If you're concerned about how you're going to pay your bills, if you're falling behind on uh, finances, if you're uncertain about your future, 
that can start creating stress. And sometimes that stress overwhelms us in a variety of ways. It can overwhelm us uh, with our personal relationships. It can make us uh, nervous in the workplace. It could lead to uh, alcohol and substance abuse. There's all sorts of uh, issues that kind of come into play when financial health is creating stress upon physical and mental health, which is really uh, why I think this talk is so important and why I'm excited to bring this to my fellow EMS professionals, because we often uh, don't really have resources readily available to us on how to navigate and manage our finances, and it can cause a lot of, a lot of stress. And when we bring that stress to the workplace, who does it ultimately impact? It impacts the patient. If we're going to be good clinicians and provide high quality care, we need to be in our own personal state of wellness along the way. When we talk about financial health and a lot of people go, oh, oh no, finance is money. I don't want to think about it. We need to take a step back and start with the vision. Why? What's important? Everyone has different values and the values that are important to them are going to be what drives why they're uh, interested in improving any aspect of their wellness. Maybe it has to do with family and loved ones. Maybe it's about a sense of security. Maybe it's a feeling of independence. Whatever uh, a person values, that's going to help drive why they make the choices they make or uh, the things that they do or the things that they want to do. And then from the values, it's possible to develop goals. Where do you want to be? Do you want to retire? When do you want to retire? Do you want to travel? If so, where? Do you want to help fund a loved one's education? All of these goals uh, tie into the larger vision, the larger set of values that, that we all bring with us. Sometimes with this, people get a little overwhelmed. They know they go to work. They know they make money. They know they pay bills but they don't really have a great sense of where it's all going to lead and where they're going to be when their working career comes to an end. And we know that sometimes a career comes to an end even a little, a little sooner than we would like for it to like for it to happen. So within the components, uh, within the larger financial health framework, there's really four components, spending, savings, debt, and planning. And they all tie together. One impacts the next. If you're spending more money than you're making, then you're not going to be able to have savings and you're likely going to start to take on debt. Maybe you're good at saving some of your money, but you don't really know the best thing to do with it. It's, it's sitting in uh, a bank account, but you're not really maximizing everything that it could be used for. Then there's planning. Where are you going to be in the future? And have you properly prepared yourselves for any risks that can occur along the way? So let's start with spending. We live in a society where we need to exchange money for goods and services. And if we're working in EMS and that's our profession and our occupation, that's how we earn our income. And that's really the resource we have to be able to spend. I could think back to my own time in EMS working multiple jobs. Sometimes uh, if spending control wasn't really an option, then making more money seemed to be the strategy. And that worked for a few years, but over time, things change. Our values change. We might want to spend more time away from work. And that's where managing spending can really uh, start to be helpful. 
One of the ways you can better control spending is to track it. Whenever someone wants to modify a behavior, one of the important things they can do is track their behavior. Nowadays, it's very easy to spend money, especially with credit cards. It's not even a swipe in many cases anymore. You can even just tap a screen and move on your way or pay from your phone. We can Venmo people, PayPal, all these different ways we're able to, to spend money. But if you're not tracking it over time, you might not realize where a lot of the money is going. When you use a tool like the one you see here on the screen, where you're tracking where all the money is going over time and to what different expenses, you're better able to understand where it's going. And more importantly, does it align with your long-term goals and does it align with your values? I know I'm guilty that whenever I'm working the road, I'm often grabbing a coffee on the go or making another impulse purchase, and it really starts to add up. But unless you pull it together and you really look at it in a format like this, you don't realize how quickly it is uh, going right out the, the wallet or the pocketbook or the cell phone or, or however else uh, you're making payments. By the way, if you do like this budgeting tool, it's available for free through our website. It's something that's just uh, open to the public. Uh, you can link in your accounts and make use of it. And really tracking your purchases over time can help you better align your spending with how you wanna be spending. Some people find that credit cards or digital payments, it's just too easy to spend. It's become too easy. So some people have success going completely cash only. If you have the money in your wallet, if you're able to see it being spent, if you're able to touch it and feel it and have that visual representation of how much you started the week with and how much you have left as the week is going, uh, that could be really helpful for a lot of people at rating in out of control spending. Uh, this is a technique that's worked for many people over the years. And if uh, tracking expenses through digital payment isn't the best way for you, the cash-only model can be really helpful. It makes it a lot more real. And there's some scientific evidence that when people are using cash for payment rather than digital payments, they actually wind up spending less because they're more aware of every purchase that they're making. Making one little change, and I've got the picture here of avocado toast because it's become kind of a meme. Uh, you know, people say finance is easy. Why, why can't you just stop buying avocado toast and then you would, you would have plenty of cash resources? And, and we know it's really not that simple. There are a lot of expenses in life we really can't avoid. If you have children, you need to pay for childcare expenses in order to be able to work. Uh, we all have housing expenses. We have utilities. But sometimes there are a few small things that we realize we can make that one small sustainable change. And over time, that can really start to add up. So Eric in the audience is asking for questions with regards to losing money in the economy and length of time to recover losses. That's, that's, a, really good, that's a really good question. That actually segues nicely into savings. Once we have a good control of our overall cash flow and how we're spending our money, we then have the remainder, which we can use for savings. And the reason I chose this picture with the different jars is that there are different things we save for. Some are short-term, some are medium, some are long-term. 
Retirement's very long-term. Retirement is what are we going to do when we no longer can generate any income from working? Short-term savings are more like liquidity. It's an emergency fund. What am I going to do if there's an unexpected expense? And then we have our, our in-the-middle goals. Maybe there's a really big vacation we'd like to plan for or a vacation every other year we'd like to plan for or saving for education over time. We have to divide our savings into these different buckets. And the reason we do that is we don't only want to save for retirement. We don't want to spend everything we have. We want to align our savings with our values and our goals so that for each thing we're pursuing, we have a good idea of how to get there. When we talk about the uh, investments in the current economy, right now the stock market is down since the start of the year until now. But very often that's an unrealized loss. Unless you actually sell those funds uh, from your investment portfolio, the loss only appears on the computer screen. It hasn't actually become a realized loss. So I think what Eric's getting at is when is that going to come back to the levels it previously was? And the most honest answer is, we never know what the future behavior of the stock market is gonna be. It always has up or downs over time in relation to the broader economy. But historically, it has increased over the long term. So when you're saving and you're investing, part of the strategy you use is to determine when am I going to need this money? If you have investments in a retirement fund and you still have many years or even decades of work ahead of you, the chances that the market will increase uh, between now and then are very high. And so you can invest in riskier assets that can have a higher return on the investment. When you're saving for something more short term, you want a safer investment like cash or a certificate of deposit. And then there are things in the middle like bonds or other uh, more fixed equities. So I can't forecast when the market specifically is going to return to the highs it was at at the end of 2021. But over time, we do expect the market to generally increase in value and provide good return to investors, even though we can't specifically say whether it's going to rebound from its current low in six months or 12 months or eight months. But that's why we divide things into the different buckets based on the overall time horizon. That way you're not anticipating using money in the short term, which you've invested in something which has a lot of volatility and might not have the funds available when you need it. And the one other thing I would emphasize is that losses really aren't real until you've liquidated the holding, until you've taken the, the cash back out of the investment. So if you have a longer term horizon, you can allow that time for the market to rebound and for the value to increase to where we want it to be. Savings can be tough. Uh, we all, we all want to save. Uh, we know it's important to save. At this point, the average savings rate in the U.S. is 3.5% of income. Uh, really, the best way to start to improve savings is to first better control your cash flow and your spending, build up your short-term savings, and then you can focus more on your long and, and medium-term goals using different investment instruments like the stock market, uh, equities, bonds, other types of investments. Debt. 
debt can be a tool. Debt can also be a trap. That's why I have this one image in here. Uh, the person's reaching for the money and that bear trap is probably going to take their hand off. Some people find that they're not comfortable with debt. They want to be completely debt free. Uh, it's, it's a nice aspiration. Some people are able to do it. There are other situations where it might not be feasible. If you want to purchase a home and the homes in your area go for several hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you might not necessarily have that cash on hand. In fact, many people don't have that cash on hand. So debt can sometimes be good for us if it's stable, if it's structured, if it's long-term. Investing in an education if you invest a reasonable amount uh, into pursuing an education that over the long term is going to increase your earnings potential, that might have a good ROI. If you spend a lot of money financing an education which doesn't have a lot of market value when you're done, you might wind up struggling to service that debt. And we know that that's become a very a uh, big topic in society recently. A lot of people have taken on high levels of debt that they're struggling to effectively manage. And this all goes back to making choices. What choices do you want to make? If you can get a good interest rate on a home, a good interest rate on an education, a good interest rate on a vehicle, which you need to get to work and to transport your family around or transport yourself around, then uh, debt can be a tool in order to help you accomplish those goals. When we start having unsecured debt and high interest credit card debt, that's when we start falling behind. That's when we're earning money and we're using it to pay off the purchases we've already made and at interest rates that we start to wind up uh, on the hamster wheel and, and the interest is compounding and you can get into a lot of trouble over time. So for some people, one of the first steps of improving their financial health is a combination of reducing high interest unstructured debt while also starting to build up an emergency fund if they don't have one. And it's, it's a balancing act. You don't want to only pay off your debt because then if there's an unexpected expense, you'll need to take on more debt. But you don't want to only save in your emergency funds if you're paying very high interest on this credit card debt, especially if it's, uh, if it's capitalizing and increasing in principal value. So part of a debt reduction strategy for a person who's fallen a bit behind is really often a split between building savings and reducing the debt and figuring out the time frame on which that can occur so that when there's an end date in mind, it's not just this indefinite cycle. You can have a better understanding, when can I get to the point I want to be? Uh, and tracking a goal and seeing yourself making improvements over time can be very fulfilling. And then planning. Planning has a few different components to it. Part of it is exciting. I want to retire. I want to travel the world. I want to fund an education for a loved one. So I've got some money I can put aside, or I'm going to start saving. I want to start investing. What investments make sense based on when I think I'm going to need this money? What should I be putting, uh, what should I be investing in uh, in order to get the best return and also minimize, minimize the risk? But there's another part of planning too, which is kind of protecting against really bad things. What if you become disabled and you no longer can bring in the income that you have in the past? 
Or if you were to die unexpectedly, will your family be taken care of? So part of planning involves evaluating insurance. It involves looking at social security benefits and survivor benefits, uh, making sure you have an estate plan in terms of if you no longer were capable of making your own decisions, who would make those decisions for you and what would your wishes be? Then another component of planning also is, is taxes. We all have to pay uh, taxes. That's one of the only things that's guaranteed, death and taxes. And uh, there are different ways that individuals can potentially limit the amount of taxes uh, they pay. One option could be through participating in a work-based retirement plan like a 401k or a 403b. For some folks who are working uh, on the side as contractors doing uh, instructional work and they're getting paid on a 1099, there might be some business deductions they're able to take. There's also a lot of stuff that's floating out there. Uh, it would be a whole other talk in and of itself to talk about LLCs and S-Corps. But I will say being active in the industry, being active on the EMS job boards and seeing uh, different postings go out for travel assignments, that the consideration on forming an LLC and then whether or not you should take the S-Corp treatment, it's a, it's a pretty complex decision that you really want to get professional investment advice on. From, from what I'm just seeing in casual Facebook conversations, I, I feel that a lot of people are potentially getting themselves into trouble through the overutilization of, of the S-Corp tax status. And, and that's really going to come down to each individual's personal situation, but it's become a little bit of a buzzword. At this point, I almost, I almost think S-Corps have become like years ago, therapeutic hypothermia after ROSC became really big and everyone was buying refrigerators or figuring out how to chill the saline. And right around the time uh, we retrofitted everything, there was some new research. It's, it's not as clinically effective and, and we fell away from it. Uh, I feel like at this point in time, S-Corps for people doing travel contracts is 1099 uh, is, is becoming quite overutilized and people are potentially getting themselves into some trouble with that. So you really want to work with a finance and tax professional before um, you don't want to mess with the IRS. You want to follow uh, the rules very carefully. So uh, big decisions require good advice and, and good planning. And really, you know, when we talk about planning, there's a lot of different components. There's spending, there's saving, there's investing, there's estate planning, there's taxing, taxes, there's investments and rules. It's all rules, rules, rules. And people get overwhelmed by all the rules and all the different, uh, all the different things that kind of they're bombarded with information. Some information is, is good. There are some principles that work well for most people. But then there's a lot of individual situations which uh, a blog or uh, impersonal advice can't really speak to. And that's where you really need things that are more uh, custom tailored to you and your unique situation, preferably in a format that starts to be digestible. It's not over the top. It doesn't overwhelm you. It doesn't make you want to run away and say, forget this whole thing. And what I found is that organization helps reduce anxiety. Here on the uh, right-hand side, we can see a one-page snapshot report. It's visual. It shows where you currently are, where you hope to go. It's the type of thing you can talk through and start to have a better understanding of, of where you stand. 
And as you have the organization and the understanding of what you're doing and why, that improves control. And if there's one thing I know about emergency care clinicians, we love feeling in control. We don't like feeling like something is existing around us. We want to take charge. We want to make our own decisions. We want to know where we're going. And so we want to be empowered in order to get uh, to wherever that might be. Question came in about crypto. Is it worth it? This would fall under the category of a speculative investment. And, and from a very high level, uh, the way you would look at something like crypto is it's still new. There's a lot of hype around it. It could over time evolve into a very mainstream currency. And so it could continue to go up in value as some people who were basically futurists and bought Bitcoin 12 years ago, and now the value has gone up. Uh, people see that and there's a, a FOMO, a fear missing out. I don't want to be left behind. But there are other things about crypto which haven't yet fully been vetted out. Uh, it's still not regulated. Uh, there's still issues about if uh, you lose possession of it, if you no longer have the code to your wallet. And it also has some issues with the creation of it and the energy involved. So there's a lot about crypto we still don't know. And when there's something along those lines, it's speculative. There could be a really high reward, but there's also inherently going to be a lot of risk because there's still a lot of things we don't know about it. And with things that fall into that speculative asset class, if you have a, a good overall financial health and you want to make a speculative investment as a component of a larger comprehensive investment plan, then uh, that could be something that might be an appropriate decision where, where I would be very wary and what I would generally uh, warn people about is you wouldn't want to go all in on something that's still unproven. The U.S. dollar is a very proven, very stable uh, investment. It might not have a great ROI, but we know it can be used for goods and services. The day the dollar can't be used, uh, the whole society is collapsed. Stocks and bonds, there's different risk, there's volatility, but over time, uh, they're established and they're also tied to either government debt, and, and many governments do pay their debt on time, or if you're talking about stocks, they're tied to a, a business which provides a good or a service and it generates a profit, which it's able to transfer uh, as a shareholder dividend or the value of the stock increases as the value of the company increases. So all of those more established investment vehicles are tied to very um, established uh, processes. There's a lot of trust and credibility and, and um, it's, it's generally safer. Crypto, uh, you know, if there was one or 2% of your, uh, your overall portfolio, you wanted to kind of take a chance on perhaps, but I would not uh, at this point, advise anyone to make that the basis of their investment strategy. And that brings me to, to the next important thing. When, if you choose to work with an advisor, uh, there are benefits to working with a good advisor. Uh, it's really important that you work with someone who's credible. 
first starting place is always verify that they're licensed. And you can do that this website here. Everyone who's registered with the state securities office or the SEC is going to be in the SEC database. It's critical to work with someone who, who has a license. You want to make sure that they are licensed because when a person with a license gives you advice, if it turns out to be bad advice, that person's got skin in the game. The regulator could, could come back on them for failing to adhere to the regulatory standards. So working with someone with a license uh, gives you an extra level of protection. The other important element is that a person who's licensed will very often be insured. And not that any financial advisor or planner would want to be sued, but if a person has insurance and they do breach their duty and you've suffered harm as a result, uh, the insurance provider could, could pay out to make you whole. So the other benefit of working with a licensed and an insured provider of services is that if they give you uh, advice that turns out to have been they didn't meet their standard uh, of the advice they've given, there's now a mechanism that you could be financially compensated for the error on their part. So those, those are two really big benefits uh, to working with someone who's licensed and insured is it also helps protect you if their advice uh, winds up not being very good. The other important thing to keep in mind is financial advisor is a, is a very broad term. Within the financial advisor space, there are uh, registered representatives who are brokers. They sell financial products. There are insurance agents. They sell insurance products. There are insurance brokers who help you purchase an insurance product by working with different insurance agencies. Uh, I'm a little biased, but I would always recommend working with a fiduciary who's very often a investment advisor. An investment advisor, someone held to the fiduciary standard, has to put the client's best interests first, and they do not sell products which they earn a commission on. And that's, that's uh, I just think, so important because when someone's financially incentivized to sell you a product that they're getting a commission from, it doesn't mean the product's bad. It doesn't mean that it might not be appropriate for you, but it's, it's held to a different standard than the fiduciary standard. And the fiduciary standard is, I'm giving you advice and this advice needs to be in your best interest. And if it turns out the advice is not in your best interest, you could, you could come after the fiduciary for violating the standard of care in the same way that if you're an EMT or a paramedic working in an EMS system, if you deviate from the standard of care, the established guidelines, there's the quality process, there's the medical director, there's the state licensing agency. When you're working with a licensed individual, all of those safeguards are in effect to help make sure you're getting the best advice for your situation. So there's a question from the crowd. I'm interested in investing, but I don't have much money. I work in EMS, LOL. Understand that. Is there a minimum dollar amount I need to meet? So that's going to vary based on what particular um, investment offering you're looking to get into. Typically, as, as a starting point, 
the first gateway into investment is usually if there's an employer-based retirement plan, like a 403B or a 401k. What's nice about those is it can reduce your taxable uh, liability. It also, um, typically when these plans are set up uh, with an employer, it might mean that there's not a minimum in place. So whatever from the paycheck you're able to start contributing, you could then uh, start doing so. And a lot of organizations also offer either a match or a contribution. Uh, and in the case of a match in particular, it's almost like additional extra salary just for investing in your own future. So the first thing I would generally say is to look to see if you have an employer-based retirement plan uh, without a minimum, which you can start contributing to, and if your employer has a match or a contribution. Uh, once you're investing in that space, if you want to start uh, investing in non-retirement assets, uh, the first thing I would always tell someone is, before you start investing, make sure you have good liquidity, make sure you have good cash on hands for an emergency, because you wouldn't want to realize a loss uh, by being too uh, invested in the stock market, which can go up and down with a bit of volatility. And then you have to take a realized loss in order to um, meet a short term need. So uh, if you don't have a lot of money, that's okay. Every Fortunes are made dollar by dollar. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the financial planning community or financial advisors are often looking for people with very high incomes or who already have a lot of investments. So there are a lot of people who really don't get the benefit of, of professional advice, and it can almost become a barrier to um, wealth generation and accumulating wealth. And that's part of the reason for this talk is to say that there are some principles that you can follow in order to start accumulating wealth and improve your financial health, even if you're not a person who financial advisors are typically uh, beating down your door to, to work with you. So uh, my recommendation would be start by assessing your employer-based plan to see if there's a contribution or a match you can take the benefit of. Your next step for your non-retirement uh, funds would be make sure you have sufficient liquidity. Typically, that's three to six months of expenses based on um, how stable your job is. From there, you can then start getting into riskier asset classes like stocks and bonds. And uh, based on whether you're in a mutual fund, sometimes there's a minimum purchase. If you're purchasing ETFs, exchange-traded funds, which are based on mutual funds, those uh, you can sometimes buy uh, as individual shares. And in that case, uh, $50 or $100 might be enough to get you started. Uh, the one other plug I would put out there, when you're choosing financial uh, investments, uh, I'm not going to say any particular uh, provider of investments to go to, but I would recommend you want a provider who has low Low, low fees, low expense ratios on their funds, uh, and preferably no fees. You don't. There are options where you don't need to be paying additional fees to purchase um, an investment, and so you want to avoid the ones in which uh, you do have to pay that fee because very often that's a commission to a person uh, selling the product to you. Uh, whereas there are organizations where you can go online and uh, purchase directly from them with an online account and there are no fees uh, or commissions based into those. I'm pausing for a moment in case there are other questions.
or an affirmation that that helped. Okay, how about day trading? I'm going to quote my father. Uh, my father used to say, if stock pickers really knew what they were doing, they wouldn't need to work anymore because they would already know uh, what, what stocks to pick and why would they bother having a job. Investments generally, uh, to do well over time, what you want to do, uh, there's something called strategic asset allocation, and that's the type of uh, investment uh, advising I offer. Strategic asset allocation is based on the idea that you can't pick individual winners or losers. So instead, you invest broadly in the whole market based on your timeline for when you need the money and your tolerance for risk. And when you look at your overall timeline for investing and when you'll need the money and your overall tolerance for risk, how much it can go up and down, that'll put you into a collection of stocks and bonds, which will generally track with the overall market over time and produce the best returns at the lowest level of risk. When you start getting into individual stock picking, you're at risk that any one company could go bankrupt or could have a bad quarter or a bad year. And so what you try and do is diffuse the risk across the entirety of the market, which generally does well over time without tying yourself to any one or two particular companies or organizations. And that's, that's where day trading can get people in trouble. And I know there's a lot about it with meme stocks and Reddit and all this other stuff. There are people bragging about all the money they've made. But really what happens to a lot of people with day trading is they lose a lot of money on fees and commissions. They wind up having a tax bill they weren't otherwise intending to have. And at the end of the day, they're really no uh, better off. In fact, they're not better off than had they done a more uh passive investing strategy with a longer term horizon. Are there any tax breaks for being a paramedic? If not, there should be. Well, uh, the biggest thing that comes to mind, it's not necessarily a tax break per se, but if you have qualifying time with a public service employer and you uh, have any student loans, until the end of October, you can submit your PSLF waiver request. I would encourage anyone with any amount of public uh, service and federally held loans to get that form in. Even if you don't yet have the 10 years for the complete debt forgiveness, the payments to date can be qualifying and then you can proceed along with the uh, revised rulemaking that's being proposed. So if, if you're a paramedic uh, working in public service, that can be helpful. Unfortunately, that doesn't translate for uh, providers working for private for-profit uh, companies. Unfortunately, it's tied to the organization rather than the job role, but that's that's one thing that exists. Um, if you do 1099 work as an instructor teaching ACLS or teaching at the local community college or at the fire department, uh, 1099 income is self-employed business income. So if you have appropriate uh, and necessary business expenses, which can tie to that income, that can help reduce uh, your taxable liability. The other part of tax planning uh, that becomes very important for EMS and paramedics 
is in many places, I know I, I always had multiple jobs. And sometimes when you go to pick up that extra shift at the smaller service uh, or your part-time service, your taxes are being under withheld. And I know people who at tax filing time have had a surprise. They thought they would at least break even if not get a refund. And they wound up having to write a, a check to the IRS or the state. And that's certainly not any fun. So that's where tax planning comes in to make sure that you're withholding uh, is appropriate in order to avoid any surprises around, you know, February to April. I'd love to connect with people. Part of the reason I'm doing this talk uh, is I'm a paramedic. Uh, I've developed this skill set over the course of the past few years through coursework and licensing exams. I want to be a, a resource. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I've got a Facebook page, LinkedIn. There's a, a website as well. It's more fun to have a conversation. If you have a question, tweet it at me. Uh, if you're thinking it, if you're curious, there are probably many other people who are as well. Uh, I can't get into specific, uh, you know, I can't on Twitter, I can't get into a person's specific uh uh, nuts and bolts, but general principles, general questions about uh, the deadline for the PSLF, general questions about uh, tax withholding, about retirement accounts. I'm very happy to, to interact and be a resource to the community. I want to pause for a moment because there already have been a few questions, which is awesome. This is an engaged group, so I'm curious if, if there are any others. Pausing for one moment. Last chance for questions. Well, if you follow me on social media on any or all of these platforms, I'm always posting general info about uh, the economy, the financial markets. I write a blog post from time to time to time. So I uh, really would enjoy uh, interacting with people. That makes it a lot more fun. And I want to thank GEMS for the opportunity to present and bring this to the EMS community. I appreciate every one of you who was in attendance today for the live broadcast. I hope many more will check out the recording and I'm here for the EMS community. So please don't hesitate to reach out.